Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. A quick follow-up on our previous episode. I am, indeed, now a married man, and I want to thank you all for being so patient since I had to take a few weeks off from the podcast to plan and travel for the wedding. It's, It's pretty important stuff, as you might expect. I also want to give a quick shout-out to some listeners and colleagues who wish me well in this future endeavor, particularly New Blood Rising podcast host William Rankin, Lee Carlos Cunningham from the Raw is Nitro podcast, and Ryan Palmer at Yardy316 on Twitter. Thank you very much to all of you, and if you have any advice for me, I'm all ears. Also, another quick reminder to subscribe to the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, because I'm appearing on one of their Nitro Mania episodes, where my longtime pal Adam and I talked about WCW's Halloween Havoc 1995, as well as the following night's episode of Nitro, and that episode of the podcast ended up going for almost two hours. If you want to hear about sumo monster trucks, the Yete, and the debut of The Big Show, while also mixing in a whole bunch of terrible impersonations of wrestlers, then that will certainly be a show you'll want to download. Again, that's the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, and I will be appearing on episode number 10 of their Nitro Mania series, which is due to be released either this Monday night or Tuesday morning. Check it out. And finally, a quick thank you to you, the listeners, for helping the Raw Attitude Podcast to crack the top 100 on Stitcher's list of the top movers last week. Essentially, that means that of all the podcasts on Stitcher, we were in the top 100 for the largest week-to-week increase in listeners, and that's pretty goddamn cool. So thank you very much to all of you, because I couldn't have done it without you. And I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. Alright, so with that being said, let's dive into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, September 21st, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Arco Arena in Sacramento, California. Some of the other noteworthy shows which have taken place in this same venue include Judgment Day 2001, The Bash 2009, and, most notably, the 1993 Royal Rumble, where Yokozuna was victorious in the Rumble match itself. For the second week in a row, we do not queue up the opening credits, the pyro, or the obligatory scanning of the crowd, and instead we just jump right into the action. However, I will of course still mention some of the most offensive signs in the crowd, so here's a quick list. Sable got milk? Austin can suck it like Lewinsky? China has a vagina? Very astute observation there. Bischoff blows Turner? Sable, I know you want these nuts? And Val Venus is packing like UPS. Alrighty then. 
So we open this episode of Raw with The Rock walking to the ring, and as he's doing so, I can't help but notice that we have a completely different announce team for this show. Instead of the usual pairing of Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler, we get the tandem of Jim Cornette and Shane McMahon. Now that is quite the combination. In case you're wondering why JR and Lawler are absent on this occasion, it turns out they're actually away filming scenes for the Andy Kaufman biopic Man on the Moon, starring Jim Carrey, which will be released in theaters about a year from now, around Christmas of 1999. Fun fact, Lawler and Jim Carrey actually end up getting into a legit fight on the set because Carrey refused to break character and he kept bugging the shit out of the king. I'm sure the real Andy Kaufman would have been proud of that one. But anyway, back to Raw. So when The Rock walks down the aisle, we see that Vince McMahon, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock are already standing in the ring together. Right off the bat, Vince makes a statement that WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin had better not rush the ring and try to attack him, and then the chairman motioned towards the top of the ramp, where The Undertaker and Kane are now standing. If you recall last week on Raw, Vince struck a deal with the Brothers of Destruction to watch his back in exchange for both of them being placed into a triple threat WWF Championship match against Stone Cold at this Sunday's Breakdown pay-per-view. But turning to tonight's matches, Vince then says that the Brothers of Destruction will face Austin and a partner of Stone Cold's choosing, so that should be a fun cliffhanger. The chairman then shifts his attention to The Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock, or, as they should be called, the Rock, Sock, and Shamrock connection. Mr. McMahon tells them he's going to give them all the opportunity of a lifetime, but first, he must inform them that none of them are allowed to be Stone Cold's partner in tonight's match. And that bums me out because I was hoping we'd get Austin and Rock versus the Brothers of Destruction, but, alas, perhaps another time. However, with that being said... Vince says he would be proud if any of the three of them became the WWF champion, and then he proceeds to make another match for tonight's show. So, Rock, if you smell what Vince McMahon is cooking, you'll listen up, because you damn sure don't want this SmackDown. <laughs> and Shamrock, you may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Whoa! <laughs> As far as I'm concerned. Oh, boy. But you're damn sure the most dangerous. Mankind, Mick. Never mind. Oh. What I'm saying is tonight, the opportunity is for one of you to be the number one contender. All you have to do is compete in this ring in a triple threat match. Yeah. Just like we're going to have this Sunday. Yeah. And the winner of the triple threat match will face the new WWF champion in this very ring one week from tonight. Yeah, he, he's put Austin in a match and then he's pulled all Austin's back up out and Think he's going to make it. the fight. I'll even volunteer to be the guest ring announcer one week from tonight. Then when one of you steps into the ring to face the new WWF champion. All I can say is, whomever it is you'll be facing one week from tonight, damn sure won't be stone cold. Thank you very much. <laughs> so there you have it. The Rock, Mankind, and Ken Shamrock will compete in a triple threat match for the right to face the WWF champion one week from tonight on Monday Night Raw. Plus, Vince even volunteers to provide his services as the guest ring announcer for some reason. 
Good stuff, and yet again, Raw starts off with a bang, as we now have two huge matches scheduled for later in the broadcast, and I'm looking forward to both. After a commercial break, it's time for our first match of the evening, Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Southern Justice, versus Billy Gunn, accompanied by Road Dog Jesse James and X-Pac. If you recall last week, Jarrett hit Road Dog twice in the throat with his guitar, and the D-O-double-G is still not fully healed, so Billy must, unfortunately, fill in for him during their intro. Let's just say there's a reason why Billy doesn't usually get very much mic time. However, after that intro, we do get an amusing moment where Road Dog proceeds to hold up cue cards for Billy so he can do the ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls routine, which I thought was pretty funny. Anyway, before Jared and Billy's match can begin, referee Tim White immediately ejects Southern Justice, Road Dog, and X-Pac from ringside, so it looks like this will have to be a fair one-on-one encounter with neither man having any backup. Early on in the match, Shane McMahon basically announces to the world that he's watching his monitor and not looking at the action in the ring, because when Jared attempts a pinfall, Shane exclaims, I can't see the referee, even though the ref is literally about 15 feet away from him. And already, I'm starting to count down the days to when Shane becomes an on-camera performer, as opposed to a commentator. Yeesh. The finish of the match came when Billy Gunn went for a corner splash, but Jarrett moved out of the way, causing Billy to hit his head on the ring post. Mr. Ass then staggered around and accidentally ran into referee Tim White, poking him in the eye. Double J saw an opening, so he rolled out to the floor and grabbed his guitar. However, when he re-entered the ring, Tim White had recovered, so he grabbed the guitar out of Jarrett's hands. That allowed Billy Gunn to sneak up on Jarrett, hit him with a neckbreaker, and get the three count? I'm pretty surprised that a simple neckbreaker was enough to get the victory there, but maybe they're trying to get that over as Billy's new finisher for some reason. Given his gimmick, you would probably think that an ass-breaker would be more appropriate, but I'm not sure that such a move exists. Yet. We then go backstage where Michael Cole tracks down Vince McMahon, who is standing at a table along with, holy shit, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara. All three of them are standing around looking at notepads, which is very meta since they presumably just booked this show. Also, Russo has a massive fucking unibrow at this point, and it's hideous. I swear to God. Seriously, this thing would even make Santino Morella jealous. Anyway, Cole asks Mr. McMahon if he thinks anyone will volunteer to be Stone Cold's tag team partner later tonight, to which Vince says he doesn't know, but, partner or no partner, Austin will be in the ring with the Brothers of Destruction. And that provides a fitting segue because we then go back to the arena for something which I thought was really cool to see. They show a crowd shot of the fans just sitting around, But then they hit Stone Cold's music, and everyone immediately leaps to their feet and gives him an enormous pop. I actually got goosebumps just seeing that. It's really insane how over Austin was at this point in time. So Stone Cold grabs a mic and recaps the festivities from last week's episode of Raw. Vince McMahon has scheduled a triple threat match for Breakdown, where The Undertaker can't pin Kane, and Kane can't pin The Undertaker, essentially making it a two-on-one handicap match against Austin. And because we're pre-taped this week, Stone Cold refers to the match as bullshit because he knows they can bleep it in advance. Smart move. 
He then turns his attention to tonight and says that it doesn't matter if anyone volunteers to be his partner because he's prepared to take on both Brothers of Destruction all by himself. And to wrap it all up, he gets in a good line where he says that if he has to walk into hell this Sunday, it won't be Austin 316 that shows up. It'll be Austin 666. And that's the bottom line, because Satan said so. So, Sorry, sorry, because Stone Cold said so. Pretty standard Austin promo, aside from referencing the Mark of the Beast, but of course he had the crowd in the palm of his hand, because that's what he does. However, we're now left with two questions. Will someone volunteer to be Austin's partner tonight? And, more importantly, will this be the last time we see him holding the WWF title? Stay tuned. After a commercial break, we see footage from earlier today of The Undertaker and Kane arriving at the arena, and, once again, they seem to be going out of their way to kill the mystique of both of these characters because they're dressed in street clothes and wheeling their bags into the arena. Hey, WWF, here's a good rule of thumb. The unstoppable monster version of Kane shouldn't have luggage. Just trust me on this one. Even worse is the fact that Kane is wearing a ski mask with a towel over his head, and he's also sporting a black and white track jacket with workout pants. Back in episode number 22 of this podcast, guest host Martin Dixon and I ranted about this same issue where Kane was shown outside the ring wearing a jacket with neon purple sleeves, so apparently he hasn't learned his lesson yet when it comes to fashion in his personal life. Yikes. We then go back to the arena for our next match, the Oddities with their horribly dubbed over entrance theme on the WWE Network versus the Headbangers. Amusingly, when the Oddities make their entrance and dance in the ring, the Headbangers appear to like it so much that they actually join in and dance with the freaks, and then they spray Silly String into the air as well. At this point, even though they're supposed to be fighting each other, both teams are just letting loose and having fun, but then... The Headbangers take separate aerosol cans and spray some sort of substance into the Oddities' eyes. Not only that, but Mosh actually grabs Luna by the back of her neck and throws her out of the ring, so it appears that we have a heel turn for the Headbangers. And then, in the ultimate dick move, the Headbangers tear apart Golga's Cartman doll, leaving stuffing all over the ring and drawing big boos from the crowd. And sure enough, Mosh and Thrasher then proceed to just head backstage, so it appears as though the match has been called off due to extreme assholishness. And truthfully, I can't say I'm too disappointed about that since I wasn't exactly looking forward to an Oddities Headbangers match, but I will give them credit for booking a very effective heel turn here. Desecrating a South Park character? That's just sacrilege. We then go backstage again where Michael Cole is standing by with The Undertaker and Kane. As usual, The Undertaker does all the talking and says there's going to be a funeral for Stone Cold tonight if he shows up by himself for their match. And after that funeral, perhaps they can also perform a cremation ceremony for those hideous street clothes they were wearing earlier. That's my hope. Next up, it's time for what is truly a historic match, because it will be Sable versus Jacqueline for the WWF Women's Championship. For those of you scoring at home, the WWF Women's Championship has been completely deactivated for almost three years at this point. Why? Well, allow me to explain. In late 1993, the WWF decided to make women's wrestling a more focal point for their new generation era, so they scooped up a woman named Deborah Maselli, who previously competed in WCW under the name Medusa, and for the record, she was not given that name because she was portraying herself as ugly, but rather it was a shortened abbreviation of the phrase, made in the USA. Just so we're clear. So the WWF took Medusa and rechristened her with the ridiculously terrible ring name, 
of Alundra Blaze, where she was then given a very nice run with the company. Over the course of her two years in the WWF, Alundra Blaze held the Women's Championship three times for a total of 539 days, which still stands as the third highest total ever for that belt. But then, we fast forward to December of 1995. With the WWF going through financial turmoil, Alundra Blaze was released from her contract while she was still the women's champion. And apparently no one thought to actually request the title belt back from her, which turned out to be quite the mistake. Why? Because five days after she was released from her WWF contract, she made a surprise appearance on the December 18th, 1995 episode of WCW Monday Nitro, where this happened. But first of all, look at that little guy. He's whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Can it, everyone. You too, fat dog. I am Medusa, always have been Medusa, and always will be Medusa. This is the WWF Women's Championship Whoa. belt. Whoa! Wait a minute, what? Look. That indeed it is. Right, Chad. And that's what I think of the WWF Women's Championship belt. Yes, that's right. She showed up on Nitro, and apparently with much coercing from Eric Bischoff behind the scenes, she dropped the WWF Women's Championship belt into a trash can on live TV. Obviously, this was a massive what-the-fuck moment at the time, and it really helped to play up the must-see nature of Nitro, because Bischoff wanted to foster that environment of anyone can show up and anything can happen at any time. However, despite such a high-profile appearance on Nitro, I do feel the need to point out that Medusa wrestled only 17 matches on the show in the four and a half years she was with the company. So clearly they really capitalized on all that momentum she had coming in. Retroactively, she has admitted she regretted trashing the title belt because it led to her being blacklisted by Vince McMahon and WWE for almost 20 years. But of course, all's well that ends well, as she was eventually forgiven and inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2015, going in under her Alundra Blaze name, of course, instead of Medusa, since Vince always has to give himself credit for people's success. And to prove how much cooler heads had prevailed since then, she even began her Hall of Fame induction by pulling the title belt out of a trash can. Quite the callback. And today, here in 2017, Medusa slash Alundra is even acting as an interviewer for the Mae Young Classic, a 32-woman tournament being broadcast over several months on the WWE Network. Nice feel-good story there. But anyway, back to September 21st, 1998. So the WWF Women's Championship has been vacant since it was thrown into the garbage can on Nitro back in 1995, but now either Sable or Jacqueline will be the new standard bearer for women's wrestling in the WWF. So with that being said, let's get into it. Before the match begins, we once again see Sable's mystery fan sitting in the front row and cheering her on, and in case you missed the last episode, we will come to know that fan as Tori, T-O-R-I, in the coming months. And of course, Jackie is, as always, accompanied by Mark Merrow, because his feud with Sable will never die. Also, during Sable's entrance, Jim Cornette tells us that the Women's Championship has been vacant since, quote, the departure from wrestling of the last champion, Alundra Blaze. So according to the WWF narrative at the time, Alundra has just quit wrestling altogether. Clearly, Vince isn't bitter. 
Early on, Jacqueline controlled the match, hitting Sable with a DDT, and, in a move that probably wouldn't fly these days, Mark Merrow choked Sable on the middle ring rope when the referee's back was turned. A husband choking his real-life wife on camera, welcome to a different time. However, Sable did get her revenge later on. She threw Jackie out of the ring by her hair, and Merrow then proceeded to jump up on the ring apron, so Sable nailed him with a forearm, knocking him to the floor. Jacqueline then climbed back up on the apron, and Sable grabbed her as though she was going to suplex Jackie into the ring. However, when Sable lifted her, Mero grabbed Sable's foot, causing Jackie to fall on top of her. If you need a point of comparison, think of the match between Ravishing Rick Rude and the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania V, where Bobby Heenan held down the Warrior's foot, allowing Rude to win the Intercontinental title. It's basically the exact same spot. And so, with Mero still holding Sable's foot down, the inattentive referee counted for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the first WWF Women's Champion in almost three years, Jacqueline. However, even though Jackie is announced as the new Women's Champion, she is not presented with any sort of title belt. Instead, she and Mero do a quick interview with Michael Cole in the aisle, and then they both just head backstage. That makes me think that either the WWF just decided to bring back the Women's Championship at the last minute and had no belt created yet, or maybe they were still waiting for Medusa to mail back the old title. Either way, poor planning, but congrats to future WWE Hall of Famer Jacqueline anyway. And after a commercial break, wow, they're actually doing this match only about a third of the way into the show, The Undertaker and Kane versus Stone Cold Steve Austin and someone else if anyone has the balls to volunteer. And as soon as Austin gets to the ring, we find out that someone has indeed volunteered because D-Generation X's music hits. And I have to say, I popped pretty big because I thought we were about to get the Brothers of Destruction versus Stone Cold and Triple H. However, after DX's music played for a bit, we saw that the person who actually volunteered to help out Austin was... Billy Gunn. I mean, of all the DX members who could have joined Stone Cold, they give us the least popular person in the group... That would be like the NWO's music hitting, and Stevie Ray comes out. Underwhelming, to say the least. And for the record, I'm assuming this spot probably would have gone to Triple H, but unfortunately, at this point, he just had surgery to repair his injured knee. Not good news for Hunter. Anyway, one other important thing to note is that when Billy comes to the ring, we quickly cut backstage where we see that Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe are watching on a monitor, and they are none too pleased that Mr. Ass has volunteered his services, presumably because it means that they now have to watch two Billy Gunn matches in one night. I will also note that during the match itself, Shane McMahon's commentary starts to become incredibly annoying, as he frequently just starts shouting, Oh! and yelling random things throughout the match. In fact, here's a quick 45-second mashup of some of Shane's commentary from just this match alone. Bam, 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 here we go! Oh, Undertaker! Woo! We have got action all over us! Oh, okay. Kane! Oh! It's all over it. Boom, 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 boom! Oh, missing with the boot now! Yep! Yeah! Oh. Yeah, Mr. X! My pops has guaranteed a new world! Oh, a new world wrestling! Oh! champion we're gonna find out how bad his ass really is and oh oh slamage oh good night he's got him that's it here we go austin right here right here austin is pissed off oh and stunner oh almost a stunner that's 
You know, he's such a bad commentator that it makes you wonder how he got the job in the first place. I feel like he must know somebody or something. Hmm. Anyway, this was a fine match. Nothing too special. Essentially, Billy Gunn was playing the face in peril for almost the entire time. Eventually, he was able to tag Stone Cold, who came in and started running wild on Kane. Austin quickly hit the big red machine with a stunner, as you heard during Shane's wonderful commentary there, but The Undertaker ran in to break up the pinfall. Billy Gunn then charged into the ring as well and started brawling with Taker. The two legal men, Austin and Kane, then brawled to the outside, which left Billy and Taker alone inside of the ring. At one point, Taker picked up Billy and threw him into one of the turnbuckles, but referee Earl Hebner was standing there, so he was accidentally knocked down to the canvas. The Undertaker then picked up Billy and hit him with a choke slam, and Hebner recovered literally only 14 seconds after he was bumped, and yes, I timed it. From there, Earl counted the pinfall, giving the victory to the Brothers of Destruction, even though Taker pinned Billy and neither of them was the legal man. After the match, Taker and Kane started putting the boots to Billy for no apparent reason, so Austin grabbed a chair, headed back into the ring, and nailed them both with chair shots to the skull. He then headed back up the aisle and flipped both of them off, which got pixelated for some reason, even though Austin had given them multiple middle fingers during the match, which had gone uncensored. So there you have it, folks. We're only six days away from breakdown, where Stone Cold will defend his WWF title in a triple threat match, which is essentially a handicap match, since the Brothers of Destruction are prohibited from pinning each other. Can Austin somehow overcome these odds and hang on to his WWF championship? You'll just have to find out in our next episode. After a commercial break, it was now time for our next match, a rare heel versus heel tag team encounter, Southern Justice versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, accompanied by Paul Ellering. Mercifully, this match only lasted for a few minutes, and it gave us one of our patented Vince Russo finishes. At one point, Jeff Jarrett walked down to ringside, and the commentators informed us that Paul Ellering had laughed at Jarrett earlier tonight after he had lost to Billy Gunn. We never actually saw this on the WWE Network version, but I'm assuming it must have happened on the original broadcast back in 1998 at some point. Anyway, Jarrett then proceeded to smash his guitar over Ellering's head, and Southern Justice then just left the ringside area as DOA tended to their manager. The match was apparently ruled a no contest, although I'm not sure why the referee didn't just count both teams out, quite frankly. So to recap the finish here, Jeff Jarrett, who was not in the match, hit a manager with a guitar, and match over. I'm sure it made sense to Vince Russo. Now, you might think nothing good can come from a DOA match, and you would normally be right, but there is something very positive which comes from this one. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the final Monday Night Raw match for the Disciples of Apocalypse. Now, to be clear, Skull and 8-Ball actually end up being employed by the WWF for eight more months after this, but they do not have a single match on Raw until they're released in May of 1999, and we can all be thankful for that. And so, with that in mind, it's only right that we send these biker bitches to wrestler heaven.
to a real brotherhood. D-O-A. The disciples of apocalypse. Let me tell you something, punk. This is a real brotherhood. We live together. We ride together. And guess what else we do, big man? We damn sure fight together. All the fight is on. Well, thankfully, the fight is now off. DOA is, well, DOA, and the only stable remaining from the gang wars rivalry is the Nation of Domination, although even they appear to be on shaky ground at the moment. Either way, we can all be glad that we won't have to suffer through any more matches featuring wannabe bikers. At least not until the Judgment Day 2000 pay-per-view, anyway. Stay tuned. We then go backstage where Michael Cole was standing by with Vince McMahon. The chairman says that Billy Gunn volunteering to be Stone Cold's partner has angered The Undertaker and Kane, and he will not be held responsible for what happens later tonight as a result. My question is, why are they so mad? They won the goddamn match. Maybe they're just upset that they had to suffer the indignity of being in the same ring with someone who refers to himself as Mr. Ass, and if that's the case, well, fair enough, I can't say that I blame them. After a commercial break, we get another Stephen Regal man's man vignette. This time, he's sitting on a log somewhere in a forest, and of course, still wearing his lumberjack shirt. He's shaving his face with an old-school straight razor, as the narrator informs us, quote, No sensitive skin-foaming gel, no dual-gliding twin-blade action. This man goes rugged when it comes to eliminating stubble. And of course, much like last week, he nods and gives a proud look into the camera, as if to say, Yup, I'm the shit. Now, this segment wasn't as amazing as last week's debut vignette, but it's regal, so of course it was quality nonetheless. Even though I know it ends up being hilariously bad, I'm still looking forward to the real man's man arriving in the WWF. I mean, come on, how could you not? We then go back to the arena where we see Al Snow enter through the crowd with head, and Tony Chimmel informs us that he's about to have a boot camp match with Sergeant Slaughter? This is really bizarre because you would think they might have built this match up a little bit more, considering it's Al's first match back with the company in three months. But no, we come back from commercial, and we're just told that he's fighting the WWF commissioner. Really bizarre. Also at this point, Sarge ain't looking like he's in military shape, if you catch my drift. He's wearing a tight black shirt, and let's just say that it doesn't do him any favors. Also, hilariously, he's wearing a green combat helmet, which just kind of makes it look like he's playing dress-up. Not the best look for the commish. Jim Cornette then informs us that if Al Snow wins this match, he will be reinstated to the WWF, but if he loses, he's gone for good. But really, though, the stipulation for his match at King of the Ring was that he would be gone for good if he lost, and now he's back three months later, so I think he'll be fine. For those scoring at home, I believe this is our first boot camp match since the In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view back in December, where Sarge was defeated by Triple H. Fun fact, for that match, Slaughter actually entered to Kurt Angle's future theme music. The fans did not chant, you suck at him, but they probably should have. And in case you're wondering, a boot camp match is basically just another way of saying that it's a no-holds-barred, falls-count-anywhere match. Al Snow does not have to actually enlist in the military and go through basic training, just so we're clear. So both guys did end up using the occasional weapon in this match, most notably whipping each other with a belt and hitting each other with a chair. We also got a pretty fun spot where Slaughter was down on the arena floor, and Al moonsaulted off the guardrail on top of him, which surprisingly only got a two count. Crowd loved it, though. 
Back in the ring, Al then attempted to one-up himself by going to the top rope and attempting a moonsault onto Slaughter while he was holding a chair, but Sarge moved out of the way. He then put Al into the Cobra Clutch, but he escaped by grabbing head and nailing the commish in the balls. Effective. He then followed that up by hitting Sarge in the face with head, and that was good enough to get the three count, which means that Al Snow will now be reinstated into the WWF, much to my chagrin. Another fun fact, after Al wins, we get the Monday Night Raw debut of his new theme song, which is not very good. After the match, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe then run into the ring and proceed to start beating the crap out of Al, which makes me wonder why they didn't do that during the match, since there were no disqualifications. However, fellow ECW alumnus Scorpio then runs out from backstage and chases the Stooges off with a chair, so it would appear that they're setting up a potential tag match here, although I kind of wish that they wouldn't. After a commercial break, we go backstage again, where Michael Cole is with The Rock. He asks him about the triple threat match tonight, and Rocky says he's prepared to become, quote, the best damn WWF champ there ever was. And, as it turns out, he is probably not too far off on that assessment. We then go back to the arena for our next match, Val Venus versus Owen Hart. Before the match begins, we see that Dustin Runnels is now joining the commentary team. If you recall last week, Val debuted his newest movie, The Preacher's Wife, which featured Dustin's real-life wife, Terry Runnels, and we are then told that last night on Heat, Val debuted another movie with Mrs. Runnels called How Terry Got Her Groove Back, so they've been quite busy on the set recently. And of course, before the match can begin, Val must also get in one of his trademark sexual innuendo promos, and I'm ashamed to admit that this one actually did make me chuckle. He'll get his. You know something? Some men light their cigars dipped in a little brandy. But you know something? The president, like myself, like our cigars dipped in a little French liqueur. <laughs> you know, la whiskey. <laughs> What can I say? I'm a sucker for puns. And, uh, there was no pun intended there when I said sucker. But anyway, the match only lasts a few minutes, which is a shame, because I wouldn't mind seeing a lengthy encounter between Valvinus and Owen Hart. Throughout the match, Shane and Cornette are pretty much egging on Dustin, asking him how he can just sit there doing commentary, when the man who has humiliated him is only a few feet away. And sure enough, eventually that strategy appears to work because Dustin runs into the ring and starts attacking Val, causing the disqualification. However, Val manages to get the upper hand by hitting Dustin with a spine buster, and then he ties him up in the ropes. Val then grabs a mic and starts slapping Dustin in the face while telling him to turn the other cheek, and again I'm thinking to myself, who's supposed to be the heel and who's supposed to be the face in this scenario? Val then completely gives up on his usual sexual innuendos and asks Dustin, quote, Have you ever witnessed your wife experiencing real orgasmic pleasures? So obviously we're just throwing subtlety out the window for this one. He then directs Dustin's attention to the Titantron for his newest movie, There's Something About Terry. We see Mrs. Runnels lying in the bed and saying she was considering a reconciliation with Dustin, but now she has changed her mind. And then, sure enough... Val pops up from under the covers, where he says that he couldn't find Terry's kitty cat, but he's going to keep looking. Now, normally I would say that Val is using the term kitty cat to mean pussy, har har, 
but he's saying he can't find it, so what the hell kind of porn star is he? Back in the arena, Val then tells the still-trapped-in-the-ropes Dustin that he never did find Terry's kitty cat, but, quote, your wife's vittles were so tender. Val then heads backstage, as I'm left feeling like I need a shower, since the WWF's idea of sexy apparently involves an innocent kitten and the word vittles. Ugh, no thank you. We are then informed that these two will be facing each other this Sunday at breakdown, so perhaps they can finally resolve their differences then. We shall see. After another commercial break, it's time for our next match, and it's for the WWF European title. Champion D'Lo Brown versus Challenger X-Pac. In case you're wondering, D'Lo is originally from Chicago, but tonight he's billed as being from Madrid. I love D'Lo's adopted European hometowns. And in case you were wondering, yes, D'Lo is still wearing that chest protector three months after he suffered that pectoral injury, and clearly, it's completely legitimate. Also, I must once again point out that Shane McMahon's commentary is somehow getting even more annoying throughout the show, as evidenced by the opening few moments of this match. You know, I'm not sure if anyone has plans to create a Sunday Night Heat podcast, but if you do, I wish you the best of luck, because Shane is on commentary for the first few months of that show. Have fun with that. And as a quick side note, when I googled the phrase Sunday Night Heat podcast, the first listing that came up was the Sunday Night Heat bonus episode of the Raw Attitude podcast, so clearly we're taking over the interwebs. But anyway, getting back into it, D'Lo and X-Pac had a very solid five-minute match, and the outcome was rather unexpected. At one point, D'Lo hit X-Pac with his sky-high powerbomb, but he was too slow to cover him, so Pac kicked out at two. From there, D'Lo climbed to the top rope and went for... some sort of move. He basically just jumped straight at X-Pac, which turned out to be quite the mistake, because Pac caught him in midair and planted him face-first with the X-Factor, and that was enough for the one the two, and the three. Your winner and the new WWF European Champion, X-Pac. In case you're wondering, Pac is only the sixth man to ever hold the title in the year and a half that the belt has existed, so he's in pretty good company. Not only that, but X-Pac's victory means that DX now holds every major title in the company except for the WWF Championship. Pac has the European title, Triple H has the Intercontinental title, and the New Age Outlaws have the tag team titles. Quite the stretch of dominance they've had since SummerSlam. After the match, X-Pac celebrated by jumping up on the announce table and crotch-chopping toward the crowd as a pleased Shane McMahon stood up and yelled, Gimme! 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 Meanwhile, a stunned D'Lo headed back up the ramp, yelling no in disbelief that he had lost his prize championship after only about two months of holding the belt. No word as to whether or not he plans on still residing in Madrid. After a commercial break, it's now time for our main event, a triple threat match to determine the number one contender for the WWF Championship one week from tonight on Raw, The Rock versus Mankind versus Ken Shamrock. As a reminder, we're in Sacramento tonight, and that's actually Ken Shamrock's build hometown, so I assume he is the sentimental favorite for the crowd. In case you need a reminder, Rock and Shamrock have had quite a bit of history throughout 1998 as they feuded over the Intercontinental title at the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania, and Shamrock later went on to defeat The Rock in the finals of the King of the Ring tournament. 
Mankind does not really have any significant history with either man as of yet, but let's just say that he'll get there with one of them. So this triple threat followed the usual formula we've been accustomed to seeing in this type of match. Two guys fight in the ring, while one guy gets thrown outside to take a breather. Pretty standard. And I will note that even though Shamrock was the hometown guy, the crowd still popped huge when The Rock hit him with the people's elbow. Perhaps The Rock's growing popularity is enough to overcome the usual regional bias. At one point, we got an amusing moment where Shamrock put Mankind into a sleeper, but then The Rock snuck up on Shamrock and put him in a sleeper, which is probably a shout-out to that ECW three-way dance between Terry Funk, Sabu, and Shane Douglas, where they did the same spot. Mankind cleverly managed to escape by dropping down for a jawbreaker to Shamrock, which also resulted in Shamrock delivering one to The Rock as well. Well done. However, it was at that point that Vince McMahon, The Undertaker, and Kane emerged from backstage and stood in the aisleway. Remember that earlier tonight, Vince said he would not be held responsible for the Brothers of Destruction's actions, so that does not appear to bode well for the competitors in this triple threat match. And sure enough, The Undertaker quickly pulls Mankind out of the ring, and he and Kane proceed to beat on Foley, leaving Rock and Shamrock alone in the ring. Rock then hit Kenny with one of his patented float-over DDTs, but it only got a two-count, and, interestingly, we saw Mr. McMahon reacting unhappily when Shamrock kicked out, as though he seemingly wanted Rock to win the match. Hmm. Shortly after that, Rock tossed Shamrock over the top rope, and the Brothers of Destruction then proceeded to gang up on him and take him out of the match, too. Taker and Kane then entered the ring and stared down the Rock, so Rocky tried to fight them off. Unfortunately, that proved to be unsuccessful, as the Brothers of Destruction hit him with a double choke slam. Taker and Kane then headed outside the ring and started beating on Foley again. However, since Vince was standing in the aisle by himself, Stone Cold Steve Austin snuck up on the chairman, punched him in the face, and then started putting the boots to him. Taker and Kane eventually chased Austin away, but the damage had been done. We went off the air with Vince asking the Brothers of Destruction, Where were you? But more importantly, it appears that we have yet another trademark Vince Russo non-finish since the triple threat match has presumably ended in a no contest. So, uh, I guess that no one is the number one contender then. Quite the satisfying finish there, huh? However, there's more to cover before we finish, so let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heist like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Heading into tonight, Nitro has been on a six-week ratings winning streak, having defeated Raw every week since August 10th. Granted, Raw was on Saturday night for two of those episodes, but still, WCW has been in firm control lately. However, that all ended tonight as Raw squeezed out an incredibly narrow victory, putting up a 4.02 rating to Nitro's 3.91. Incredibly close, but the WWF has ended their losing streak. And I will admit that this episode of Nitro contains a bit of regional bias on my part because it is one of only two episodes of Nitro to ever take place near Raw Attitude Podcast headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. And here's what you could have been watching over on the TNT network. Fit Finley defeated Barry Darso. That's right, Repo Man still getting a paycheck in late 1998. 
Wrath defeated Nick Dinsmore. Yes, that's right. The future Eugene was jobbed out by Adam Bomb. Rick Steiner defeated Rick Fuller in a rare Rick versus Rick match. Raven and Canyon defeated Los Vianos when Raven and Canyon botched a powerbomb neckbreaker combo, resulting in Viano 4 suffering a legitimate neck injury. Nick Patrick actually called the match off after less than a minute, so medics could tend to Viano, and thankfully he was able to walk away with some help, but this injury ultimately ends up sidetracking his career for the next nine months. Scary stuff. Continuing on, Diamond Dallas Page defeated Alex Wright. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Lenny Lane. Perry Saturn defeated Jerry Flynn, a rare Perry vs. Jerry match. Kidman defeated Disco Inferno to retain his cruiserweight title. Conan defeated Chavo Guerrero. And in your main event, Kevin Nash and Lex Luger vs. Stevie Ray and the Giant went to a no contest when a shit-faced Scott Hall interrupted the match. And by the way, this is after the show literally began with Hall arriving at the arena, holding a brown bag full of booze, and telling Doug Dillinger that someone wrecked his car. WCW, Masters of Subtlety. Nash then challenged Hall to a match at Halloween Havoc, as, of course, anyone would do when their best friend's life is falling apart. Way to help out there, Big Sexy. We also got an intense face-to-face promo between Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff, Not nearly as good as Flair's return promo from last week, but still a worthy one to check out if you want to see Flair get in Bischoff's face and go apeshit as only the Nature Boy can do. And finally, we had another interesting segment on this night between Hogan and the Warrior. The show began with Warrior's cloud of smoke filling the arena, and we then saw that the Disciple was lying face down in the ring. From there, the smoke appeared again, and once it dissipated, the Disciple was gone. The mystified NWO then looked up into the rafters, where the warrior was standing, with an unconscious disciple at his side. Yes, it appeared as though the disciple had magically teleported. And I'm going to read a brief passage here from the classic book, The Death of WCW, where this particular stunt is explained. The string of horrible programming continued the next week on Nitro, with an angle in which Warrior, using his magical cloud of smoke, not only kidnapped E. Harrison Leslie, but instantly teleported him from the ring to the rafters. To accomplish this feat, they had Warrior in the rafters, hugging a blow-up doll dressed like Leslie, one of the most surreal visuals fans would ever see. It was never explained how any of this was intended to sell tickets. That's right, a Brutus Beefcake blow-up doll, folks. Presumably not one of the bigger sellers for the real doll company. And then, to finish off that night's broadcast, Hulk Hogan ordered the Disciple to attack the warrior in the aisle, but instead, Disciple turned around to reveal that his vest had O-W-N written on the back of it. Yes, the show went off the air with the revelation that the Disciple had joined the One Warrior Nation. I repeat, the One Warrior Nation. Apparently, this nation of one now has two people. Mathematics, not WCW's strong suit. And so, let's take it to the raw synopsis. So last week, the WWF pretty much pulled out all the stops in order to compete with Ric Flair returning to Nitro, and it produced what was, in my opinion, one of the best episodes of Raw of all time. Top to bottom, everything was great. So this week, it obviously stands to reason that there would be a decline. With that being said... This was still a pretty enjoyable episode of Raw, which was heavy on actual in-ring wrestling for a change. This episode gave us eight matches, not counting Headbangers vs. Oddities, and the total amount of ring time was 48 minutes. 
I know that doesn't sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but the typical episode of Raw around this time probably averages about 30 minutes of wrestling action in a 90-minute show, not counting the commercials. I guess what I'm saying is, for an Attitude Era episode, 48 minutes of wrestling is certainly a welcome change of pace, even though some of the matches were subpar. Not only that, but we had one title change, the European belt, as well as the reintroduction of the women's championship, so even though this could have easily been a throwaway pre-taped episode, the WWF still went out of their way to give us some very important moments. Overall, I would give this episode a thumbs up, but if you go back and watch it, my main advice for you would be this. Be sure to mute the fucking commentary. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip from when Eric Bischoff interviewed Medusa slash Alundra Blaze on his podcast a year ago, and they discussed the infamous belt in the trash incident and what the fallout was for her. Of particular note is the very beginning of the clip where Medusa mentions where she was when they negotiated the stunt. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. And and then, the truth is, I was sitting on the toilet and then talking to you, and, we're, <laughs> and we were talking contract, and you did ask me, you asked me, hey, you still have that title, don't you? Yes, I do. Why don't you bring that with you, Deuce, and we'll talk. You mean we, nego- we, we, we negotiated that, that moment while you were sitting on the toilet? I swear to God, and I am going to admit that to you, yes, because that's what I thought. <laughs> that's just classic. <laughs> well, I, well, you know, bullshit. Listen, I, oh, sorry, baloney. So how many people actually do business on the toilet? Many. Okay, so, and I'll be the first woman that did it. And I, whatever. I didn't know when that was going to happen. I was going to be black, blackballed for 21 years. What the hell? I mean, do you know what I went through? Eric, I went through crap. I mean, I, I mean, that was the defining moment to everybody for 20 years, and I had to live with that. It ruined me, basically. I never did an interview for wrestling. I never went to a wrestling signing. In fact, this is the only sec- this is the second or third podcast that I've ever done since I retired. This is, I've only done two signings since I retired. That's it. I remember calling Vince's office. Because Monster Jam was going to put together a video about, you know, Medusa's past and, and her monster truck. And so I called up there. I'll never forget this. I never shared this with anybody. So um, I'll never forget calling up there and saying hi. And I was speaking to Vince's secretary at the time. Oh, what was her name? I've got it written down. It's in my book and it's biography. I can't remember. And um, Said, hi, this is Medusa um, Wonder, Deborah, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was wondering, do you think Vince would mind if I had, if I could get some copies of the video so we could use it over at Monster Jam? And it, boy, she laid into me like you wouldn't believe. I hung up that phone in tears. I thought, is that what everyone thinks? Because I didn't know anyone thought that way. If, 
because it's never possible to go back in time and you know create this you know the same construct of, of situations but i probably would do it again under the same circumstances because business <laughs> is business <laughs> it is what it is um i like to think i'm more mature and a better person but you know who knows 